You can, you can open your Bibles to Genesis 1. We're going to be in there for a little bit tonight. We're going to be kind of all over the place. Uh, I want to uh, summarize not only where we've been just recently, but kind of what we're doing. So if you're, if you're coming for you know, the first time or if you've been here before, you, you, we can kind of catch you up a little bit. We're looking, we're taking kind of a long approach through knowing God and who God is. And by the way, if you didn't get a little packet when you came in, you can grab one. They're back there on the stands. Um, but we're, we're basically taking a long approach to go through a study of, of knowing who God is and what He has done. And so we started way back in October of last year where we looked at what, uh, how we get information, how we know who God is. And so we established the Bible as the inerrant and infallible Word of God that uh, through the Bible, He has revealed Himself to us. And because of the Bible, we can know something about Him. And if it wasn't for Scripture, we would have no knowledge whatsoever. And so once the Bible is established for us as the inerrant and infallible Word of God and the fact that we can trust in what the Bible says and reveals about God, then we can move on to knowing more about God. And so we, we talked about the attributes of God, His incommunicable attributes, the things He does not share with anybody but keeps to Himself, um, omnipresence and, and uh, omnipotence and things like that. He keeps to Himself. He doesn't share. But then there are other things that He does share with us, His communicable attributes, things that He gives to us, uh, like love and knowledge and wisdom. He communicates with us. He gives, he gives to us. And so uh, we established uh, who God is, and then we looked at what God has done. He has created the world and everything in it. And we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 and kind of went through Genesis 1 and 2, talking about how He has created the world. We even talked about the controversial topics of how long it took Him to create the world versus or maybe how short it took Him to create the world. And we dealt with some of those more complex issues. And, uh, and then we spent a good deal of time on things that he has created. And so we started with the unseen realm, things not seen to you and to me, uh, angels, demons, Satan, all that good stuff. And we spent probably longer than we needed to on all of that and dealt with some of the really strange passages like the Nephilim and things, all, all, of, all of that nature, the really complex passages. And then we, when we finish that, now we've moved on to God's creation of mankind. And so we're looking at uh, man being made in the image of God. And, so, and what that means for us, what that means for the world around us. And so la uh, it was two weeks ago, the week before members meeting, we, uh, we discussed what it meant to be made in the image of God. And so we, we said that there, you see the review up here at the top of this, of this page, just kind of what we talked about a couple weeks ago, a summary anyway. There's, there's many ideas that have been suggested for what it means that we're made in the image of God. And some of those have been things like reasoning ability, intelligence, emotions, the ability to communicate with God, self-awareness, uh, language or communication ability, the presence of a soul or spirit, or maybe both, the conscience, having, and, and then having dominion on the earth. But the conclusion that, that we drew, or that I think is probably uh, most likely, is that being made in the image of God is really a combination of all of those in, in somewhat different ways. That there is a purpose for which we've been created, it seems. Right there in Genesis 1, he tells us 
uh, the purpose for him creating man in, in his image. And what does he say? You remember? Let us make man in our image and let him, what? Blesses the man and woman. He says, be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion, have dominion and f- fill the earth and, and have dominion and subdue the earth. He says, let us make man in our image and, and let him have dominion over the earth, right? So he, is, um, he, he seems to be creating mankind for the purpose of having dominion, but all of the things that are listed in this summary here, uh, reasoning ability, intelligence, emotions, um, the ability to com- uh, commune with, with God, self-awareness, all of these things are tools that he has given to us in order that we might have dominion, right? And all of those tools that he has given to us are communicable attributes that he has shared with us. So when we say, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? The most logical conclusion is, well, God has all of those things, and so we do too. So then maybe that's what it means. All of them together seem to be the most logical conclusion. And you'll find a lot of people debate as to, it it means this or it means that. Or in the text, you can see clearly it's having dominion. But um, I think it just just logic would dictate right there that it's it's all of those things together. We, those are necessary tools that come together in the package of of mankind in order for the purpose of of having dominion over the earth. Um, so we established that, and then we 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 talked about Genesis uh, one uh, twenty six to twenty eight. And where it records mankind being made in the image of God. And, and we said that that has really significant implications for humanity. Now, we said it, it, it means that the lives of human beings are more important than the life of other living creatures. How do we know that? This is where you can say things. Go ahead, Blake. Yeah, God actually says this, right? Um, he, he, said, he tells us in Genesis 1, 26-28 that uh, he, I, I'm going to make man in my image and he's going to have dominion over the earth. But then he gives us the implications of what that means in Genesis chapter 9. After Noah gets off the boat, he tells him that if someone sheds the blood of, of a man, his blood's going to be shed. The death penalty is a result of him shedding the blood of another man. Uh, God really doesn't leave us to wonder whether or not we're worth more than, than humans. He just tells us. And then Jesus even says in a passage that we read on Sunday not that long ago uh, about the, the birds of the air. Are you not of more value, of, of, of infinitely more value than they? Of course you are, is the implication. You're made in the image of God. James tells us that out of the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. When he's talking about that in James chapter 3, he says, look, with the same mouth we bless God and we curse man who's made in God's image. That We, we shouldn't even curse other mankind, mankind because they're made in God's image. And so there's so much in the Bible that grounds humanity in the image of God and sets them apart as special creatures. Uh, more special than anything else that God has, has made on, um, on earth. Um, and so we also said that every man, no matter his eternal destiny, has inherent dignity. Uh, we are creatures who are morally accountable before God uh, for our actions. We have the ability to imitate Him 
in all his communicable attributes, and mankind is not a blight on the earth. We, we, remember we talked about there, there's, a, there's a, a current of worldview out there right now that would, would tell us that mankind is the scourge of the earth. And if you really think about it, this is kind of an aside, but if you really think about the way some of these arguments from the mainstream worldview are communicated, it's a false gospel. There is, um, there is creation as it was meant to be, right? It was a, a, just a out of nothing, right? It was out, or it was out of like some little molecules. It just kind of expanded, and, and there was uh, the created order. And then there was a fall, which was man came on the earth and started destroying everything. And here's, here's the fall. There is salvation in that we, uh, we respect Mother Nature's boundaries, and there is judgment to be had if we don't. Um, there is a, a global flood that will come and, and knock us out or, or whatever. There's, you know, um, terror that will happen if, if we don't. We will be judged for not respecting Mother Nature and her, her, her boundaries. But it leads into this idea that, that mankind is the scourge of the earth. And that's not the way the Bible presents it. Uh, mankind is a, is a blessing to the earth. He's supposed to have dominion over the earth. We can sinfully abuse it. But we are supposed to steward it. It's a gift to us, and we're supposed to use it for what it's worth. Uh, any questions on that as we review? Is there any questions that have popped up uh, in, your, in your mind from tonight or just from uh, a couple weeks ago that we can answer before we go move on? Yeah, there, there's inherent dignity in, in humanity, and yeah, bearing false witness is a, a sin, obviously, yeah, good. Um, all right, so uh, we're, tonight we're really dealing with uh, mankind being made not only in God's image, but also created male and female. And so there will be uh, things that we explore over the next couple of times. I want to remind you before I forget that we're meeting tonight, and then the next two Wednesdays, I will be out of the country. So we won't meet on those two, two Wednesdays when I'm gone. Um, but we're, uh, tonight, we're dealing with being created male and female, and at least some of what that means. And we'll explore more in a few weeks whenever we come back to it. Um, but I want to start with Genesis uh, 1, 27. Why don't somebody in your packet, you have all the verses there in the ESV. If somebody will read Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Why don't you just read all three of those verses because they'll come in handy. Okay, in verse 27, who is created in the image of God? What's that? Male and female, right? 
Now, what does that mean? Male and female created in the image of God. What does that mean? Not the image of God part. What does it, what does it mean? Male and female created in the image of God. What's that, what's that mean to us? Yeah, that, yeah that, that both are created in the image of God. You would think this would not be controversial when you look at this, at this verse, but apparently it is uh, in some places. Uh, that, and, and what it implies for us is that it eliminates the possibility of either sex being inferior to the other. All right, it, it, it eliminates that possibility altogether. Now, in a few weeks, what we're going to talk about is the roles that each have been given and how we understand those roles and what the Bible says about those roles, but it eliminates the possibility out of hand that, that either of the sexes are inferior to the others. This is not true, I don't think, in every religion, even some of the Abrahamic religions that share somewhat an Old Testament. Um, now, if you talk with people of, of Is, in Islam, they would, they would argue that, in fact, uh, man and woman are, are equal. But if you uh, really talk to them, <laughs> they, they would say that uh, they're equal, but man is a little bit better, right? <laughs> which, is, which is not at all equal. And, and I think that bears itself out in some of the laws that you see that Muslim countries tend to abide by, especially when they're governed by Sharia law and things like this. And so it would, it would call into question whether or not they actually do believe that, they're, that they really are created equal. If they don't have the same inherent dignity, if they don't have the same inherent rights, then you would it would it would certainly call into question whether or not you actually believe they are created equal. Um, but it also tells us a couple of other things. What what else does it tell us about him creating male and female in his image? Does it tell you anything else? Are there any other implications of that? What's that? They're separate. They're separate. The the sexes are separate. We're not there yet, Timothy. Hold on. <laughs> that would be called jumping the gun. <laughs> no, Jen. I'm not sure if I'm just reiterating what you've already said, but um, that they are equal in the There is some diversity, right, in unity. Yeah, go ahead. It also means that it's binary. Yeah, uh, it means that it's binary, um, which you also wouldn't think would be controversial, but it is. Uh, it is a controversial topic very much in, in our... Uh, it's, it, it, it means that sexuality isn't an accident, that it's actually with, with intention. Now, here's where we get just a little bit deeper in him creating them in the image of God, male and female. Because doesn't it bring up the question, does God have sexual parts? Is God a sexual being? Is God male and female? What's that? Uh, okay. He, he took on flesh. We'll deal with the incarnation later. Uh, 
is, does God have sexual parts? No. How do we know that? He's spirit. God is spirit. He, Jesus tells us in John 4, 24, God is spirit, and his worshipers will worship him in spirit and truth. God doesn't have sexual parts. How can mankind be made in God's image and be male and female? It's not physical. Okay, what do you mean, not physical? We were talking about being made in God's image, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we, we've already said, like, being made in God's image is, it seems to be a, a, an exercise of dominion and then a, a list of characteristics that allow us, or tools that allow us that, that, uh, to fulfill that purpose of having dominion, right? But if I'm a non-believer and I'm reading Genesis 1, 27, I might be inclined to ask you, well, then doesn't being made in the image of God imply that he has sexual parts of some kind because we're made male and female in his image? It says specifically, we're made male and female in his image. Well, what does that really mean then? That, why does he include that in here? That, hey, listen, being made in God's image is being made male and female, right? What does that, what does that mean? Well, um, it seems like the creation of humanity as male and female is possibly linked to the image of God in that though both sexes are fully made in the image of God, he has also created a plurality in humanity much like we see in the Godhead. That in humanity, there is a plurality, male and female, just as something like you would see in Christ. Jesus is fully God. And... Also, he is distinct from God. There is oneness and diversity. Does that make sense? Right? Are you, are you track? What's that? So, so when you look at humanity as a whole, we together, Shannon and I, if we're standing up here, we are both fully in the image of God, independent. So if, if I step away from Shannon, I'm still in the image of God right? She is still in the image of God. But together, man and woman make up humanity, right? And so there is diversity. We are two different individuals, both fully in the image of God. And, but together, we make up uh, humanity as well. Um, now, we have to be careful here, incredibly careful here, because we don't, want to, we don't want to presume that the text is really trying to illustrate the Trinity because I don't think it's doing that. But I think when we say in the, the image of God, God is three persons and one essence, right? And so we've also said before, as we talked about the Trinity, there's nothing on earth that really illustrates the Trinity properly, right? Because when we look at humanity, they're not three, they're just two. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me so far? Shannon? No. Humanity is two, as opposed to Trinity being three, right? So it's not a, a direct illustration, for sure. Okay. 
So we have to really be careful because the Bible doesn't actually use humanity as an illustration for the Trinity. There's never a point in the Bible where we're going to stumble upon a verse where it says, uh, just like humanity is two, male and female, that make up one humanity, so God is three that makes up one God. There's not, there's not a verse that's going to spell that out, right? And so we have to be careful to say, is this what Moses is really doing when he writes this verse? And I have to say, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's what he's doing. But it seems as though to be made in the image of God, male and female, implies that there is some oneness and there is also diversity in both humanity and in, um, in God. Does that, yes, tracking with me, following me? So what is your answer? Well, I think at first I would say uh, verse 26 seems to imply that there is plurality in God, in the Godhead. He says, let us make man in our image. Um, So I would say, what does he create? Does he create a man or does he create a plurality? It seems as though he creates a plurality. So I would probably leave it at that. Now, and so when you see male and female, there is a plurality. But then we can go a little bit further than that. One, two things I want to answer here, uh, verses 1 and 2. The Bible does not draw a distinct parallel between male and female relationships and the divine Godhead. So there's not that verse that's just going to, that's going to say, hey, mankind really illustrates the Trinity. But two, uh, the Bible does draw a distinct parallel between the male and female relationship and Christ's love for the church, right? It, it does definitely do that. Um, but regardless, it can be said that humanity being male and female, both being made in the image of God, does reflect unity and diversity. There also seems to be one of the thing that's present here is that what, what, why are they created male and female? It's told to us in the text. Why are they created male and female? Yeah, to multiply. Um, To be a part of the creative process. Well, how can they create just being one? They can't. So he makes them male and female, both being dignified by being made in his image and together coming together, being able to multiply and fill the earth. To actually fulfill the role that he created them to fulfill. To subdue the earth and have dominion. Yes? Tracking with me? Can't hear your heads rattle. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not trying to make it more complicated than it has to be, but. um, So, but then the the second thing that's really uh, important as far as discussing uh, God creating us in his image, male and female. It, it definitely implies that we're built for relationship. And we see this spelled out in Genesis. If you look at 2, 18 and 24, somebody read those out loud for me. Now, this is the first time in the entire Created creative story in Genesis 1 or 2 where we discover that something is not good. 
and what is not good? That man is alone. So God specifically looks at Adam that he has created and says that it's not good that man is alone. And so what does he decide to do for him? He makes a helper fit for him. So it tells us that the original intention of creation of mankind was not to be God's image alone, but together with a spouse to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and subdue it. And I think if you look at Genesis 1, 26 and 28, and you look at Genesis 2, 24, together we get that picture uh, in Scripture. And, the, and by the way, the Jews firmly believe this, right? They firmly believe this. We see uh, the Jews go into captivity in the land of Egypt, right? And they get this beautiful, lush real estate out in Goshen, Right? But what happens while they're out in Goshen? Do what? They multiply. Not only do they multiply, they become the biggest people group in the land, and they start to make a lot of other people nervous because, hey, if they got the wrong inclination, they could come, they could come over here and take us. Um, the Jews felt like it was their responsibility to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth as part of being made in the image of God. It was part of the, the natural process that they come together in marriage, that they procreate, they have children, that they, uh, as part of being made in the image of God. It seems as though it's very clear in Genesis, the original intention of mankind is exactly that, to come together in marriage, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it as part of being made in the image of God. Yes, questions about that? So together they become one flesh, uh, one flesh partnership. They become a one flesh partnership, exercising dominion as not two, but one flesh. Uh, somebody read for us Matthew nineteen six. Go ahead. Oh, not good and original intention. Original intention. Uh, together they become a one flesh partnership, exercising dominion as not two, but one flesh. Somebody read Matthew 19, 6. Somebody else? No longer two, but one flesh. While therefore God is joined together, let no man separate. How about 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5? Conjugal, yeah. And then Ephesians 5.28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So it seems as though not only have they been a one flesh partnership and they've come together, but it, it, you understand that it doesn't make them more in the image of God that they're together. It's not image of God plus image of God equals image of God squared. 
And now it's like this superpower. That's not what's happening when, they, when they're coming together. But it seems as though they've both been given the requisite tools for being the image of God, but then coming together, they fulfill a purpose for which they've been created in the image of God. They have the inherent dignity apart from each other. They have the value and the worth and the specialness that they are as created in the image of God, but in coming together, they together fulfill the purpose for which they've been created in the image of God. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, there are some things that change about this when we get into the, the, uh, the New Testament, but before we get there, um, the one flesh partnership at its inception was a mystery but in Christ, the truths of the mystery were revealed to be a symbol of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. So somebody read Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that that refers to Christ and the church. So look at what Paul does here. He's going back to Genesis 1. And he's saying, when God did this, he created the male and female, and then he joined them together. And it seemed as though when he created the male and female in Genesis, he says, therefore, let a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Like, it seems to be a nat the natural implication of God creating the male and female in his image and being fruitful and multiply. It, the implication of that is, therefore, go get married. Go get married to one another, right? And so Paul is saying, all of that at the beginning was kind of a mystery, that the people were kind of wondering, okay, but, but, but why? Why did you do it that way? And Paul says in the New Testament, once Christ is revealed, then is revealed the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage being to illustrate for us Christ's ultimate love for the church. Meaning that marriage in the Old Testament was designed to point forward to Christ. And his love. Does that make sense? That's crazy, isn't it? It's, it's bizarre and weird and strange and crazy and awesome all at the same time. And, uh, and so Paul is saying, you know, it, it, was, it was always created that way. Now, here's what I've found as I've talked to people and taught in churches and things like that. Guys, a lot of times, have this really kind of weird feeling about being called the bride of Christ. Yes? Can I just get an amen? Come on. It's, you know, we're like, we're like, come on, uh, church, the bride of Christ, stand up. Uh, your husband, we're worshiping your husband. And, and guys just tend to be a little bit weirded out by that, I think, more than anybody. Um, so, but let's look at Revelation just real quick. So there's three passages in Revelation I want us to take a look at in particular. Somebody read Revelation 3, 5, and 12. So there's some images to marriage in these two passages for the one who conquers. Remember the context that those two verses, those two passages are coming out of? 
Those are in Revelation. Those are letters to the churches. And he's warning them not to fall away, but to continue in faithful obedience to him. And there's a, there's a promise at the end that he gives to those. Do you see any marriage parallels in those promises? What? What's that? There's white garments, right? There's the symbol of purity, right? As the, the bride of Christ. You see any others? His name? Yeah. He actually tells us at the end of what you just read, the second verse of what you just read in verse 12, that I will give to him my own new name. And, and that's not the only time he uses that in Revelation. It's just one of the examples that he tells us we'll, we'll have his own name. What is his name that we're going to have? Anyone? Anyone? What does he mean? We'll have his own new name. Yeah, his name is holy and righteous and true, right? Revelation repeats that over and over, holy and righteous and true. And we'll have his name. We'll be holy and righteous and true. And so here is the picture of the church redeemed. Once Jesus is revealed to all humanity, he has lifted us up from the grave. He has given to us white garments and he has given to us his name. We've taken his name. All right. But then look at, at Revelation uh, 19, 6 to 10. Somebody read that. So do you see the parallels there in even just a, a wedding feast or a wedding ceremony? The bride of Christ, the church, is right, in, right now being made ready for Jesus to come and get her. And when he comes to get her, the two will be united and there will be a feast. There, there's marriage parallels all over this and it tells the story of Christ redeeming his people and giving them righteousness and holiness and, and truth. And so Paul is telling us that from the beginning it was designed, marriage was designed, so that when Jesus tells us this is what he's going to do, it makes sense. That the story of Christ makes sense uh, because of marriage. That's really kind of strange, I think. Men feel better about being called the bride if it's like all of us together. It, it's a little bit better. But it's not, it's not great, no. Uh, but, but, the, but the reason is because it is, it's because of the parallels. So there, there's significant implications there for our own marriages, right? There are significant implications for our own marriages. Your marriage 
is an example of Christ's love for the church. Full stop. Is it? (laughs) It depends on the day, right? (laughs) And and depends on the time. And if there's a snapshot that you're looking at, I I don't know if that's what you'll see, to be honest with you. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Paul seems to think that in Ephesians five twenty-two to thirty-three, that to to have your marriage be an example of Christ in the church, that means on that means submission, and that means dying for submission to the the husband as the leader, and the husband dying for the wife, laying down his own life. Maybe physically if necessary, but also uh, just daily giving up his own preferences for the honor of his wife. Uh, there, well, there you go. I'll just let that one sit. Because uh, it, it, I, that, that, I think that's one of the hardest things uh, to implement in a marriage, I think, as we can all testify. Uh, yeah, I think we know that. Um, now look at 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 32 uh, to 38 real quick because there's some, some things that change about this mandate that's given to us to marry, be fruitful, and multiply. Paul doesn't seem to think that it's a New Testament mandate like the Jews felt that it was in the Old Testament. What does he say in 7, 8, and 32 to 38? Oh, all right, now 32 to 38. Who wants to read that? Y'all better do it or I will. So, so here you have a little bit where, where Paul steps in and goes, you know, not only does, does Paul give permission, he even recommends singleness, right? That's the next blank there. He even recommends singleness to the people in the church at Corinth. And it's hard to precisely understand exactly why but I think where the text points us is that, and, and where the, if you connect the dots of Christ's love for the church being exemplified in marriage or vice versa, marriage exemplifying Christ in the church, um, then if Christ has been revealed, the mystery has been unveiled. Everybody knows this now. If Christ has been revealed, then it's well within the rights of a Christian 
to pursue single-minded devotion to Christ and to the work of His kingdom now as we will upon Christ's return. Does that make sense? So essentially, the single person is then saying, I'm choosing to forego marriage now and instead pursue single-minded devotion to Christ who I, as part of the church, will ultimately be married to in the end anyway. Does that make sense? So they're, they're taking up a kingdom of heaven lifestyle now. Right? To which Peter says, well, then it's better not to marry. And Jesus says, only to those that it's given, right? Not everybody can receive that. <laughs> so I couldn't. Um, so say that one more time. In Paul, in First Corinthians? Yeah. What, what, was there, what was the question? Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, I, I think in Paul's mind, it's always going on, and it's going on right now, that, that uh, Christ could come back now. Well, he didn't, but maybe he could come back now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, for Paul, it's imminent. We don't know when it's, it's coming, and it could come in any moment. And so there are people that are going to be swallowed up in judgment if he comes back at this moment. And so the mandate is now we need to be doing kingdom work now. And for some, they are given the ability to remain single, as Paul is, for the purpose of doing kingdom work and being solely devoted to kingdom work. Because obviously, a married man has children and has a wife and has uh, obligations at home and different things uh, to do in, in that regard. And, and, and uh, I mean, this is probably another topic for another time, but it, it does... Uh, there seems to be an implication, I think, in our in modern churches where uh, pastors have to be married and, and they need to be married and they need to be, you know, fathers and husbands and things like that. And I don't know that that's always the case, doesn't seem like. Paul, as an apostle, was an elder in the church and was not married. And it just, I don't know, that's, that's interesting. And it, it does call into question whether or not a pastor has to be a married person, a married man. So anyway, that's another topic for another time. Do what? Could be, yeah, sure. Um, so Jesus says in Luke 20, 34 to 36, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, uh, there's some questions as far as the applications go, that I want to I want to ask. And um, first, how has the culture rejected the notion that God created us male and female in His image? What's that? I can decide whether I want to be male, female, or a whole host of other other things. There's more than more than two options. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Yeah, the marriage of male and female, right? That was the implication of that. Yeah, I can decide whether or not, I, you know, or whatever, um, that it's right and okay. Now, 
uh, there's two other implications. So if, if we're thinking along those lines, that the culture has begun to redefine these, these terms, the question then becomes, how do we as Christians respond to those particular situations? So let's suppose someone came to you. The person is introduced as Jane, but then proceeds to tell you that they used to be Jim. They've had a sex change operation and have taken years of hormone therapy. However, now Jim, Jane, whatever, has been coming to your church for the last few months and desires to come to know Christ. How do you advise this person? And the answer, go see the pastor, is not an answer. (laughs) What do you say to this person? How do you advise that? How, how does Jim, parentheses Jane, come to know Christ? The same way I do. Tell me. Tell me more. What do you say to this person? Well, I would like to tell them if they, if they desire to know Christ, then we can simply give them all the, the scriptures in the Bible. Now, listen, I know what they did, okay? But I can't change that. Okay. I can't change that. Uh, but can they not still know Christ? Is there saying? You're answering a question with a question. I know. <laughs> and, I, and, and I don't answer a question with a question with an answer. No. <laughs> okay. They repent. They repent of what they've done. They, they have, you know, but I, turning from that is... Okay. So, so you say repentance, right? How do they repent? Well, they're sorrowful for what they've done. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't know that surgery would be part of that repentance. I mean, that's... Okay. I, I don't know. Okay. I believe that Jesus is the Savior. Okay. So, that's good. this is good. We, we, you nail down, Jesus is the Savior. You've got to believe that. You have to repent of, of sin, right? That's good. All sin. Any sin. Yeah. Unbelief. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So it's a directional change at that moment. And it's a directional change in life and heart and spirit. What does the phrase directional change mean? Well, when, when we as Christians become Christians and we make that decision, what comes into our life, what comes into our heart, what comes into our soul is a direction change to run away from okay. sin through repentance. Yes. Ah, okay. So you got you have the alcoholic pornographer that wants to come to Christ. You're going to tell him, okay, repent and believe, and then does he just go back home back to the alcohol and the pornography? Is that what you tell him? Well, now you can go back home to the, the pornography and the alcohol. What do you tell him? Get rid of the alcohol and pornography. Go to his home, remove it for him. Whatever you got to do, right? You may have to move. Well, what, what do you do for... What do you do for what do you do for this exchange operation? What do you do for this person? That's where uh, educating yourself in the manner, having people that can help that situation, because that may not be something you're comfortable in talking with. <laughs> uh, this is, I think, a veiled reference to let's refer him to the pastor. <laughs> this is, I see what you did there, Thomas. You tried to like navigate around the rules. Blake, did you say you... You have the answer. Yeah. <laughs> 
not not wanting to lay down the I think it can so easily become repentance becomes in a situation like this or the one that you offer it's like you have to clean yourself up first and then you can come to Jesus mm-hmm. in the church okay and so finding a way to take them to Christ get them you know preach the gospel to them to a point where they are repenting and believing putting their faith in Christ and that is necessarily going to have long ranging changes what are those changes and well first get off the pills or the okay the good Good. So what does that mean then for Jim? I don't know. I'll call her some more. How will you see him change? What, what, what specifically? So specifics. What, what? Uh, I, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry. Abstinence, unless he's changed back then. Okay. Okay. So I, th- I think we're, I think we're, we're get, we're getting there. there. So we have to understand the concept of repentance. Repentance. A lot of times we communicate it as confessing our sins, being sorrow for our sins. That is fundamental, but it's half, right? The other part of this, and so, so there's, there's kind of the turning, there's turning away from this, right? There is picking up whole new things is evidence of repentance. And those whole new things that you're picking up are in the opposite direction of the things that you were pursuing to begin with, right? What what happens in repentance is the person's heart becomes wholly satisfied now in Jesus. So for this person who is convinced that God created me a male but I really feel like a female. What you're telling them in repentance, in coming to Christ, part of that repentance is now being satisfied in God and the decision that he made in creating you male. So what that's going to mean is that part of repentance is acknowledging this is sin. As Blake mentioned, ceasing to do the hormone treatments, ceasing to present yourself as a female other than what God created you to be, and turning toward being a man and presenting yourself to humanity around you as a man. These are fruits of repentance. The same way we would expect a, a, an alcoholic pornographer who has come to Jesus to go home and let's clean out the booze and the, and the porn, right? Let's get rid of those things. And you, as a member of the body of Christ, may even go with them to their home and start taking away their, their computer and their cell phone and getting rid of all their alcohol in their house and searching it top to bottom and saying, I'll help you do this. We're going to walk with you every day. We're going to AA. We're doing, we're doing all these different kinds of things, whatever it is uh, that, that we need to do to help get you to, to this place and start to remove these strongholds in your life. Does that make sense? Salvation has got to come first. It has to come first. Right. They, they, the salvation piece of them understanding Christ realizing that this is sin, only that heart change where now in salvation they've dis- their heart is set on Christ being better than everything else, that gives them the power through the Holy Spirit to then turn and pursue something that's contrary to their desires. Because their desires is to present themselves as one.
Yeah. But it's still not a denial of that problem, of right. their salvation. That, right. That's a very important right. part. You know, they do what they do. Right. But some of those lifestyle changes are years in the making. Yeah. Not just an instant. See, for, for us, when we repent and go get away from our sin, it's a moment and we're you can put it away. Yeah. And we're able to do that with certain things. Some of the decisions in, in, in life in today's society is just so difficult. Yeah. I see what you did there, but and no. I don't like it. Seriously, I think I think though that one thing we forget when we deal with somebody, you know, as an educator, I look at this. We always find out what's wrong, but we don't help fix it. Mm. And we, as a Christian body, forget that. Great, they became Christians. We helped them out the first month. They need they need help for years. Yeah. Some people need somebody until death right. to continue working with them and walking with them because of the struggle they go Yeah. Uh, and I think, because uh, we got to, we, we, I have to get you out of here on time or I'll get yelled at. Um, we do. We forget that when you plant a seed in the ground, we expect a tree immediately and for that tree to immediately be producing fruit. But it takes a long time, you know, and the tree buds first and then nothing and then finally it does produce a fruit on the vine or whatever on the on the limb and whatever it is and so it does take time to do those kinds of things yes and uh but the 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 bigger reality is the body of christ we just come back to who we are as a church and the identity of who we are in the body of christ as brothers and sisters there was a day i think where a lot of churches and and I, I grew up in the church and I think this is this was a common experience if you if you did grow up in the church is that you could come to church you could worship there sing your, sing songs listen to the sermon you go home you would probably interface with some of the friends in the church that you knew but then you wouldn't meet you wouldn't see say hi to everybody and then you'd come back the next Sunday your life together was one of maybe some friendship but. Uh, it was it was really for us anyway. I know for me growing up, it was casual acquaintances, and we came for the sermon and then we we left. That was our our that's what it meant to be a part of a church. You come on Sunday and you hear the sermon, but that more than that is required for us to be a body together. There is a long suffering process whereby we actually shoulder one another's burdens, and that's really difficult because. Some people are needy and they got a lot of burdens and I only got two shoulders, you know? And so we have to, that, that's incumbent on everything from leadership all the way down to put in place things, uh, mechanisms where you can interface with one another and actually share one another's burdens. Where all the way down to the member of the body who feels comfortable sharing a burden that is, maybe revealing or difficult to share. And, but, but as members of the body of Christ, that is what is mandated. And so if we see an individual, and we didn't get to the last question, that's okay. Um, you can read it and think about it and give me your answers later. Uh, when we see individuals that come to Christ, especially those that come to Christ out of extremely difficult circumstances, alcoholism or, or whatever, these addictions and sins that are just tragic and have left a scarf permanently on their body, we have to be willing to shoulder the burden with them, to 
to walk with him through it and really be run over a time or two or a hundred, right? In that process of, of, of helping them. It's a, it's, a, it's a long process. So um, I was told, first, get your kids. Second, um, you have uh, report, financial giving reports, I think, right now, leading into the last quarter up here on this pew, so you can pick those up on your way out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to come together and, and discuss and, and even think about some of the implications of what it means to be made male and female in your image. And uh, Lord, again, we pray for the culture around us that um, is, is getting a mixed message. Um, we know that there are some that, that just don't buy it. And we know that there's also, uh, with this mixed message, come these bold promises that the culture is making, that this will make you happy, that this will make you, this will fulfill you. And we know that they're going to be upset in the long run, that this is not going to fulfill them, that only you through Christ can fulfill them. And so I pray that you would give us the boldness to share that message with others, that to be made in the image of God is, to, is, is necessarily means that we can only find our satisfaction in him and him alone. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.